You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As the nation and economy continue to face the unprecedented challenge of COVID-19, many colleges and universities are delaying plans to begin the fall semester with in-person instruction, with several states now experiencing spikes in cases, particularly among young adults, school administrators are examining more cautious strategies to employ, such as online learning and canceling athletic events altogether. In this segment, Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell talks about the decisions she's having to make for her university. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter with the Washington Post's political analysis blog called The Fix. Uh, So glad to have uh, my guests here with me today to to discuss uh, how higher education will move forward uh, in this current moment that we are having nationally. Uh, My first guest is President Mary Schmidt Campbell. Uh, She's the leader of Spelman College, and we're going to discuss how Uh, This historically black college uh, in Atlanta uh, is adjusting to this current moment. Welcome. So glad to have you. Thank you, Eugene. It's so nice to be here. Awesome. Awesome. And so first, I want to start off with uh, the fact that you decided uh, to move fall classes to online. Can you talk to me a bit about how you came up with that decision? So this decision was one that we uh, came to um, as a as a group, as a community. And uh, at the outset, uh, we put together a task force that had our faculty, we had staff, we had some students, we had some recent alumni. And we we looked at the facts. We decided that we were going to be data driven. And so when we set out uh, to begin the task force, to begin the work of the task force in Georgia and in the city of Atlanta, uh, the infection rates were much lower than they are now. And so we looked at the infection rates, we looked at the size of the campus, uh, we looked at the facilities we had for residential life, and we made the determination we can bring back our first year class and in the spring, hopefully, bring back our first year class and our seniors. So that was our our first determination that we could do that safely. And because we have as part of the Atlanta University Center, a very fine uh, medical center, Morehouse School of Medicine, we had great guidance in terms of the protocols, the preventive practices we'd have to put into place, uh, the testing, the tracing, everything that we'd have to put into place to make this work. So we felt very good about it. And we issued the plan, published it with great fanfare. And then we sat back and we watched the numbers go up day after day. The infection rates, the hospitalization rates, the morbidity rates. And as we looked at a map of the United States, we could see our state first going from sort of a neutral color to orange to bright red. And uh, pretty soon we realized that we were in the middle of a hot spot. And that forced all of us to come back together again and take a look at the data and really ask ourselves some very hard questions. And primarily the question, can we safely bring back a community of students? Can we safely bring back our workforce? Our students are predominantly black, our workforce is predominantly black. Can we bring them back safely? and ensure their health and well-being. 
and we made the determination that we we simply could not given the status of the city. And what made it even more complicated was the fact that our city of Atlanta, our mayor had one point of view about wearing masks and social distancing, and our governor had another point of view. So we also thought that the clash and conflict of, of policy was also not healthy. So we made the decision that the best thing that we could do was to uh, transition to exclusively online. How have students and families uh, responded to that change? Has it affected enrollment numbers in any way? Well, I have to say, when we first announced that we were going to have hybrid, it, there, there was great um, concern uh, because uh, everybody wanted to be the group who was chosen to be on campus. So there was a plausible argument for having first year, and there was a powerful argument for having sophomores, and equally powerful for juniors and seniors, or by deciding by majors, those, uh, those majors perhaps who needed access to labs, or those majors who were in the performing arts and needed to have in-person facilities, felt very strongly that they should be the ones who are given priority. So there, there, there was a lot of concern about who among, among the 2,000, which uh, 600 of our students would be permitted to go on campus. So, so, so we, we had a lot of, of conversation and explaining and discussions. I held town halls on a regular basis to um, guide our constituency through the rationale on which we made our, our decisions. Interestingly enough, when we made the decision to go exclusively online, we, we put inside of the communication that we sent a great deal of quantitative data, uh, data that looked, looked at those, those uh, infection rates, looked at those hospitalization rates, compared the rates in Georgia with uh, places which were considered much safer. Uh, and we, we presented all of that data. And when we made the decision to go exclusively online, I was pleasantly surprised to find that many in our community actually felt relieved. And so now we're undergoing the process of uh, collecting our deposits, collecting our fees for the semester. And so far, we are pleasantly surprised that the enrollment at this point is running ahead of what it was last year at this time. It's still too early for us to say one way or another as to whether or not we are going to hit our enrollment target but right now we are on track to do so. Awesome, awesome. And so one of the hallmarks of a Spelman College education is that you have small class sizes and you know, a liberal arts setting uh, because you get to interact with the teacher in perhaps ways that you may not at a much larger, you know, maybe even public university. Are you doing anything in particular to prepare uh, professors and other educators on how to educate and teach online. I, I just imagine that's very different from teaching even in a small class setting. Now, that, that's a great question. I mean, you, you come to college um, certainly to get an education, but you also come to college to establish relationships. And those relationships are with very often with the faculty, um, they're with your fellow students, they're with staff, they're with the alumni who are in the community. And these relationships can last a lifetime. 
They're part of the foundation of you coming of age and, and particularly for our students coming of age as a black woman and coming of age as a black woman in this country. So we thought very, very carefully about how we would make sure that students would be able to continue to forge those relationships, not only in the classrooms, but in some of the co-curricular activities and some of their student organizations. So our faculty have been working literally around the clock all summer long. Honestly, our faculty were not able to even take a break this summer, but they've been working around the clock to make sure that they were converting their in-person teaching styles to a style that was suitable to online instruction. Uh, understanding the technology, understanding what resources were available to them, uh, making sure they were making full use of our learning management system. And it's not only the faculty that have to get used to online, but when we surveyed our students, we realized that almost 80% of them had never studied online. So we had to provide some training and some orientation to our students for how to make best use of the online uh, world. Uh, we're also realizing that um, we have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of work when it comes to making sure that we're keeping our community together. So we spent a great deal of time during the summer uh, coming up with some really fantastic virtual experiences. So for example, one of our faculty offered to uh, host virtual internships in data science. And we took 40 students, we had 240 applications for them. We took 40 students, we put each of them in uh, a different division. Some were in humanities, some were in the arts, some were in social sciences, and some were in STEM. And the students worked together as a team of 10. There were four teams of 10. And at the end of their internship, they had to present their projects. And so I attended the presentation and I was blown away. It was clear that these students had, uh, first of all, they had chosen real world problems. They had um, discovered some really important data sets and gotten access to them because so much material now is archived digitally. And they did uh, an analysis, they did data visualization, they did these extraordinary presentations that were really uh, revelatory of different aspects in their different divisions. So we realized that, you know, we can accomplish a great deal. We, we can't do things the same way we've done them as we would in person, but we can still help our students discover relationships with each other, discover new knowledge, and, and really have an exciting learning experience. That's encouraging. Um, I want to go to an audience question. We have one from Tara Payne uh, from New Hampshire that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, she says, how do you see uh, remote K through 12 learning impacting college enrollment next year? Do you see virtual high school impacting how colleges evaluate students? I imagine she means in you know, the admissions process. Yeah, I, I, I think this is a, a, a great question, not only for the admissions process, but for the whole K through 12 uh, experience. For the same reason that we love to have students here on campus, uh, because we know that they're, they're coming of age, and this is a, a time of development and growth and 
gaining independence for them. Uh, we know that for K through 12, the same thing is, is, is the case. So the fact that, that students now have to be educated in isolation, away from their social groups, away from their friends, away from their relationships with their, with their in-person relationships with their teachers, it, it, it does pose some concerns for the K through 12 experience in the first place. Then the, those, those concerns get, get magnified when, you, uh, when we consider how we, as colleges and universities, then assess the performance of students in K through 12. So um, I think that's a real challenge and I, we don't have the answer to that question uh, completely. It's a question that we are discussing, a question we're thinking about. How do we do that? How do we make sure? What do we ask for? Should we continue to ask for ACTs and SATs? How do we assess? How do we evaluate students? So all of these questions are under consideration and we have, we have a very short period of time to uh, come up with the answers to them because the new admission cycle uh, will begin in a few weeks. Mm -hmm. We know that historically uh, HBCUs have played such an important role in, in Black America and America as a whole, particularly when it comes to building wealth in Black Americans and helping Black Americans enter into uh, the middle class. Um, but we also know many HBCUs, especially some of those that are not as well known, are really struggling for funds right now. And, and quite frankly, we're struggling even before this pandemic and economic downturn. Uh, what do you see as being one of the biggest challenges that HBCUs are currently facing in this moment? So I, I think the question of uh, long-term financial stability is one that faces many colleges and universities across this country. Uh, we have a business model that's not sustainable. And that business model basically says, uh, for those of us who are tuition dependent, and most colleges are tuition dependent. There are only a handful, um, 40, 50 or so, that have endowments large enough that they don't have to be tuition dependent. But the other several thousands of us do not. That business model has um, required all of us to just continually and gradually increase our tuition year after year. For HBCUs, this becomes a particularly critical problem because the demographic from which we get our students, the median and annual income is somewhere around $54,000 or $56,000 a year, and it's not growing. The net worth of Black families is not growing. Net worth of most black of the average black family is $17,000. The average net worth of the net worth of the average white family is $170,000. So so we begin with a, a community and a population that already has serious constraints in terms of income and in terms of wealth. And our business models tell us to just keep increasing the tuition more and more. So this makes it, if we continue in that, in that, at that rate, we're going to make our college education less affordable for our students. So at Spelman, actually two years ago, long before we even knew that even the possibility of a, of a COVID, a public health crisis, we had started looking very seriously for alternative sources of revenue for the college. Uh, ways in which we would lessen our and mitigate the impact of our tuition. 
and begin to build new sources. So in fact, we were ready this year to launch an online platform that is of courses that were directed, not just at our students, we do have online courses for our students, but not just at our students, but for the workforce. That is the age 30 to 45 and 50 workforce to help people retool, to help them perhaps sharpen skills, to help them perhaps uh, uh, attain credentials that will help them in their job search or change jobs. Um, because we knew that we were no longer uh, be able to depend on an annual increase of even two or 3%. That, that in 10 years, that would make our tuition untenable and out of reach. So when you look, that's the, that's the fundamental problem that we suffer as HBCUs. Um, and what it requires is not only that we look for other sources of revenue, but it requires things like what Patty Quillen and Reed Hastings did. And that is to make a major philanthropic investment. Um, and it was, it was extraordinary and it was fantastic and it set the bar. And it was made in the context of the fact that if you took all of the HBCUs together, all 103 of us, and you looked at all of the philanthropic dollars from 2018, it was $321 million. Here in Atlanta, one college, Emory University, in that year had a gift of $400 million. If you looked at all the other uh, colleges and universities, non-HBCUs, um, their collective fundraising was something like $46 billion. So the gap in terms of philanthropy, in terms of what's in, available in private philanthropy and public spending, um, many of our HBCUs are public institutions. They're funded by the state, but they don't get the same level of state funding as other colleges and universities supported by the state. Um, so, so you look at all of the disparities of funding, the disparities of public funding, the disparities of private philanthropy, and you have to say, you have to ask the question, where are the values of the country? We, we know that this population is growing and we know that HBCUs have phenomenal success. We, we, we produce the highest percentages of, of STEM graduates and lawyers and doctors and judges. And yet there is a, a resistance or there has been up to now in supporting these colleges at the same level as we get support for other colleges and universities. Your comments about the values of the country uh, makes me think of one of these audience questions uh, that we received that I want to turn to uh, from mm -hmm. Ann Rhodes uh, from New York. Um, and she said, given the coronavirus, anti-racism protests, economic meltdown, and the climate crisis, what is the appropriate relationship between a higher education institution and the community in which it is located? How is your school speaking to these issues and educating your students and the community? So I think that, again, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, we have here, I, I will speak about the Atlanta University Center Consortium. In the consortium, we have four colleges. We have Spelman College, which is a black women's college. We've, we've been around for 139 years. Uh, right next door is Morehouse College. It's the country's only uh, college for black men, and they've been around for uh, almost 150 
years. Um, Clark Atlanta University, which is a research university, and Morehouse School of Medicine. Those are the four colleges and universities that make up the Atlanta University Center. Morehouse School of Medicine has just opened uh, an extraordinary medical facility. They are doing um, groundbreaking research on COVID and its impact on the Black community. They just got a big grant from Health and Human Services. They have uh, assumed the responsibility with us of the testing and tracing for our entire community. So I will say first and foremost that um, by virtue of, of what we do as colleges, we are serving the community. All of us together, the, the undergraduate schools, I would say more than half of our collective population are Pell eligible students that are students whose families make $40,000 or less. I mean, you consider the fact that our colleges, particularly Clark Atlanta and Spelman, have among the highest social mobility rates in the country. The fact that we do have those high social mobility rates, given the population that we serve, that's another extremely important service that we're doing within our community. But then over and beyond that, uh, right, up into, right up until COVID was raging, our students at uh, Spelman College we're going out and participating in a, in, a, in a program that has turned out to be pretty revolutionary. We had about 100 students who were trained in literacy and went out into our local public schools and worked with fifth, sixth, and seventh graders. Now, you may ask, why are we choosing uh, literacy as, the, as a program to participate in as, a, as an undergraduate liberal arts college? I had a meeting with all of the principals from our local public schools. And I had them over, I, came, I invited them to the president's house and we sat down for dinner. And I asked them to tell us, how can, how can our colleges be most helpful to our local public schools? And to a person, elementary, middle school, and high school, those principals said to me, teach our students how to read. So we organized this program, we trained our students, we sent them out weekly, into these public schools in fifth, sixth, and seventh grades. And over a two-year period, we looked at the results and the results were as high as 20% improvements in their reading literacy rates. We have another program that we are in the process of trying to put together in mathematics that would do the same thing for math proficiency. So this is at least one way that we know that as liberal arts colleges, with these bright, talented undergraduates, we can go out into our communities and we can make a material difference in the lives of the K through 12 students in these, in these communities. Oh, that's pretty amazing. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, I have so many more questions, but not enough time. But Dr. Campbell, I so appreciate you taking time to speak with us and to share uh, everything that's happening at Spelman with our viewers. I wish you much success this school year. Thank you so much, Scott. Great to be here. Thanks, thanks. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.